listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Thank you, Brittany. What um, Brittany just did was, uh, as she introduced it, a practice called Lectio Divina, which is an ancient old discipline that helps you meditate on the Word. So instead of just writing through it, reading your eyes over it and letting it go over your brain like a jet skier would on a, uh, what are they called on the ocean when the jet ski goes up? Yeah, that one. Diving deep like a scuba diver and actually understanding or getting to look at the treasures that are deep within and not only letting them sort of marinate but letting them read you and what is it that the Holy Spirit, who is the living God and his word that is a living word, wants to shape something in you to speak more life. So Lectio Divina is um, one of those practices. Um, Brittany just took us through that together as a community. Um, But for the purpose of those on the podcast, and in case you need to hear it for a fourth time, (laughs) let's have a look at this passage. Isaiah 55, 6 to 11. Seek God while he's here to be found. Call to him while he's close at hand. Let the wicked abandon their way of life and the evil their way of thinking. Let them come back to God who is merciful, come back to our God who is lavish with forgiveness. For my thoughts are not like your thoughts and my ways are different from yours. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so my ways and my thoughts are higher than yours. And as the snow and rain that fall from heaven do not return until they have accomplished their purpose, soaking the earth and causing it to sprout with new life, providing seed to sow and bread to eat. So also will the word that I speak, it does not return to me unfulfilled. My word performs my purpose and fulfills the mission I sent it out to accomplish. Father God, we gather to you this morning around you, thanking you for the word that spoke this creation into being, the word that spoke us as individual humans into being, the word that spoke this particular church into being and the word that continues to direct us. I want to thank you that your word is living, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword, that it divides our thoughts and our hearts and our bone and our marrow. It cuts to the chase of what is true. And I ask and pray as we gather as your people this morning that your word would not just be spoken but it would be heard that it would be planted in ready and hungry and prepared hearts, that this would not just be a gathering that happens on the 6th of October, but this would be an encounter with you that shapes life for years to come. So Holy Spirit, would you be pleased to dwell with us and do the work that only you can do in drawing us all closer to the heart of the Father and the power and the wonder of Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. If um, I haven't met you before, you wonder who this strange lady is. Um, I'm Sarah. It's been my privilege to be part of the team here for just over 10 years. And what I'm doing this morning is continuing this series that shall not be named, that just continues to build upon itself as God puts one step in front of the other in showing us what to do. I had a completely different plan for today, and yet here we are. There is something that he is desperate to speak to us. There is a strong theme around seeds around his word being a seed and how desperate he is to ensure that his Eden life in you flourishes. 
that that is his heart for you. He doesn't speak vain words when he says that he comes to bring life abundantly. He doesn't give as the world gives, but he gives abundantly and it's in a way the world cannot give. And so as I continue to do that, I really wanted us to dwell in one passage on the back of what Mark spoke about last week. So let's, as a church, put that into practice as we have a look at Isaiah 55 in concentration. When I read this passage, I was struck this week. I couldn't help but have my heart and mind go to the drought that's in Australia. Hands up if you're familiar with this drought, a smattering of hands. It's the worst drought on record. It's not just the worst drought on record in Australia, but it's now they're measuring it based on the worst drought by degrees. So not just the worst drought, the worst drought by degrees. I only had a smattering of hands put their hands up. We live in Melbourne. We don't know it's raining now. (laughs) We don't even know that there is a drought. But there is something profound about the fact that our lives can go on as normal when there is the biggest drought in this country with 92% of New South Wales under drought where they are soaking and drowning in dust. And here we are in Melbourne, life, business as usual. The coffee is good, but the lemon tree is dead and no one's even noticed it. There is something significant going on in our nation at the moment. And if um, we were to talk to or have Aboriginal people amongst us, they wouldn't batter an eyelid and say, oh, this is spiritual. We live in a a day and age that separates the physical from the spiritual. Oh, it's just climate change, which it probably is, it is. And it's just the El Ninos, and it's just nature, and it's just science, and it's just the way the world works. But in the Hebrew imagination, you don't separate these things. There are no coincidences when it comes to the Jewish worldview. And in fact, in the Jewish worldview, you don't have a soul, you are a soul, and all creation is unified together. And so what happens in the physical realm is a reflection of what is happening in the spiritual realm. And so what I want to put before us this morning is that we are in the biggest drought of our history, and we don't even notice. But worse than that, we are in one of the strongest spiritual droughts this nation has actually ever experienced. I don't know if you noticed that one even more. You might notice it within your own being and your own thirst, your own soul, hungry for more. Or you may have that satiated fulfillment of knowing Christ and tasting living water and still being thirsty, being thirsty for him and so wanting more. And then the more you get to know him, the more you realise our culture is against him and there's a grief and a burden that comes with that. Mark has um, spattered around different stats that are about to be released. He'll be touring with Barna um, around Australia um, as of two weeks' time. And Barna, if you don't know, they are, they're dedicated to doing research onto worldview, life and faith. And they do this full time and they're um, professional researchers, social researchers, and they do the full qualitative and quantitative data. <laughs> So if you're wondering what that is, it just means they know their stuff. And what is about to come out in a report um, regarding Australia is that 40% of young adults that grow up in church end up leaving church. 40%. 8% that are attending church have a vibrant and lived faith. In other words, their life is shaped by what they believe. 
that there is an intersection between what is believed and how that belief is, is lived out. And most staggering of all is that it is actually easy, and these are Australian stats, by the way, they've done research based on each nation, which is very fascinating. And what is fascinating is how much Australia is not like the rest of the West. In fact, the stats are more concentrated here than anybody else. We are in a physical drought, we are in a spiritual drought. And most staggering of all, it is easier to be a Christian in a Hindu or Buddhist nation than to be a Christian in Australia. It is easier to be a Christian in a Hindu or Buddhist nation than it is to be in Australia. And so here we have this thirsty kangaroo desperate for water. Going to a man-made well, desperate to parch its thirst. And I have to say, don't Google image Australian drought. It's one of the most confronting things I've witnessed. But what is most confronting is that we could not even know it's happening, but it's there. And so we're here in this super drought of Australia, but a spiritual drought as well, and creation is groaning. At the beginning of this passage in Isaiah 55, we just looked at the middle part. Isaiah 55 is this beautiful sequence um, of poetry, prophecy through the genre of poetry. And Isaiah is saying to come anyone who is thirsty. Are you thirsty? Come, drink, have water that doesn't cost, eat bread that doesn't cost, it is free. Come, come, come to all who are thirsty. And it's this passage about wanting to soak the earth with a deep drenching in a way that brings new life. Hands up if you've read Isaiah before. Hands up if you found it confusing. All those hands should be up. It's not a book that's written chronologically. It's written in three parts. But essentially it is um, the major of the major prophets. So the prophets are these Old Testament um, people that were given specific revelation from God to speak in to the future and into the current reality of the time. It is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. It is often said... Romans is also up for grabs, but if you were stuck on an island and you could only have one book to understand God's message for humanity and to express his heart towards us in his plan for our future, take Isaiah. And in it, we have um, a prophet who actually writes his message or the first part of his message in the most traumatic period of Israel's story, pre-Holocaust. And this tragedy was what is known as exile. Hands up if you know exile. Um, We know exile by being banished from a garden. So we once were home. We once had wholeness and peace and prosperity, complete connection with God, complete connection with each other, and complete and unfettered connection to creation, and that was severed and cut off. That's exile. The theme of exile goes through the whole Old Testament into the New Testament and climaxes with Jesus, and then a homecoming is due on the other side of history that we all anticipate. But in Isaiah's time, this geographical, literal exile hit Israel after 200 years of warning. God never just does stuff out of the blue. He cries out, and so he who has got ears, let him hear what it is he is saying. 
that yes, you might be able to have your coffee and yes, there's rain outside, but there's actually a bigger reality going on. He who has ears, let him hear. After 200 years of warning, Jeremiah is about this, Ezekiel is about this, and Isaiah is about this, my personal favourite. You have this poetic rendering of the situation. And what has happened is the Jewish nation in Israel, in Jerusalem, where the fullness of God's presence dwells in the temple, is overrun by Babylon, modern-day Iran. The war that is in the Middle East is very thick. The history has many layers, and this is one of the most potent parts of it. And Babylon takes over, and it um, takes captive the Israelites. It takes them captive in stages, so it's not all at once. Often these things happen as a progression. The first people to be taken are the artisans, the poets, and the creatives, which is interesting. Because the Jews were known as these creative people with this unprecedented imagination, and they wanted what they had. And so the creatives are taken out, and they're exiled over to Babylon, and then bit by bit, the majority of the nation is taken. And although this is geographical, and anyone who's been a refugee would relate to the trauma of what that is, what was most traumatic for Israel was not just their identity, not just their customs, not just their understanding of what it means to be, not just a nation, but God's nation is like pulled out from underneath them. And worst of all, the presence of God literally leaves the building. Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, when we remembered home. Lamentations, the book of Lamentations, is all about this period. And the whole book in the Bible is dedicated to grief and mourning because it's important. But it was such a powerful part of their story and their shaping as the people of God. And so the passage we read isn't written pre-exile, Isaiah 1 to 40 is. The passage we just read is written after exile. After 70 years of this captivity and after 70 years of confusion and darkness and being told things that are not your own tradition and and having your identity um, challenged, God starts to call his people home. And so this theme of exile and this theme of longing for home isn't just in the Garden of Eden. It is throughout the Old Testament. Two-thirds of the Old Testament is about this very exile. But it also echoes this cry we all have, every single one of us in our heart, that there's this alienation and this longing for something more no matter where we live. That something isn't quite right. And so what the Israelite people are struck with as they sat down by the rivers of Babylon, they sat down and wept, they were confronted with two questions. One was, how did we end up here? (laughs) How did this happen? And is there any chance of going home? From Isaiah 40 all the way to 55 are these messages of comfort and hope. And chapter 55, the book that we're dwelling in today, the chapter we're dwelling in today, hits this chord. Come to me, all of you are thirsty. Come to me, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways, the evil man his thoughts. And so Isaiah's message, if you were to summarise it, is that God is God. He is sovereign. He is in control no matter what circumstances lie before you. And he's not forgotten. And he has a plan. He saves 
we were to put a marketing slogan to Isaiah, it would just be, he saves, <laughs> full stop. And you and I know that, and there's testimonies in this room of that being realised. But we live in a, in a culture, the air that we breathe doesn't believe that. That's why it's easier to be a Christian in a Hindu or Buddhist nation that has some semblance of worshipping the supernatural than it is to be here in secular Australia. What seems to shape us is that we live off a, a culture that is bred on the belief that freedom is the most important thing. Your happiness is the most important thing. That, in fact, the supernatural doesn't even exist. And we bank our happiness on the self. And maybe that's why we're at the state we are with what the Barna research has discovered, is that this is go time. That the future of faith in this land is about what we decide to do now. The future of faith in this land for the generations to come is dependent on how you and I now posture ourselves before this God who saves, who is who he says he is, whose words don't fail, don't change based on paradigm and cultural shifts. And he's got a word to speak to us this morning. And so what he has said to them is that he has not forgotten them. They thought that he had, just fair, he literally left the building and didn't speak for seven years. But he had not forgotten. And he cries out to them, return to me. This is the heart's cry throughout Jeremiah as well. Return to me and I will return to you. Return to me, return to me. In his commentary on Isaiah, it's an excellent commentary by um, Ray Altland Jr. He says it this way. He says, God says to us, I'm better than you think. You're worse than you think. Let's get together. What if that's true? I am better than you think. You're either worse or in a situation that is worse than you think. Let's get together. And so what I'd love to do is take us through this Isaiah 55. As I do so, I want you to remember what word or phrase stood out for you. Uh, If nothing stood out for you, that's completely fine. There's no rules to how the word works. But we know that it's true. And so for us to dive into that together is going to be a gift to us as individuals, but also as a community. The first section we have is seek God while he's here to be found, call to him while he's close at hand. We have this word seek, seek. I don't know what it is you're seeking at the moment. Could be a new job on a seek profile. Every single human being is seeking something. It could be rest, it could be comfort, it could be money, it could be the standard things we all talk about and we all know um, are the weeds that are in our lives. It could be the good stuff as well. But we are all seeking something. What are you seeking? You'll see here I've highlighted the word seek and call. The way Hebrew poetry works is it uses this thing called parallelism, which means it says the same thing in a different way twice. So it does that to reinforce the message. And so Isaiah is saying here, don't just seek, call. This is a call to action. This is not a passive thing. This is not a, oh, God will work the drought out because he's in charge and I can just get on with my life. It's saying, no, 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 wake up. It's time to actually stand up and seek him. It's a pursuit. In the Hebrew, it also means it's persistent. It's not once. It's not even twice. 
It's again and again and again, such is the hunger and the thirst that is driving the person to do so. It's like being a kid and waiting for your mum to come home. You, you're looking down the driveway to see if it's her. Is it her? Is it her? Is it her? Something that you're excited about, that you are longing for. It means it's time to become intentional. It's time to remove distractions. It's time to let the word read you, not you read the word. It's time to act on what it says as if it was true, <laughs> because it is. And maybe the very thing that's going to break our drought, both our physical and our spiritual drought, is for God's people to actually walk out what we believe. Maybe that is what will turn the tide, and history has told us it is the thing that turns the tide. Ray Ortland, in his, um, I was about to say documentary, it'd be a great documentary, commentary, so seeking the Lord is a whole life realignment with Christ. We stop treating him as a religious garnish on the side. He becomes our continual feast, our defining centre. And the time to move in this direction is now. There are things that have been stirring in people's lives that aren't a subconscious thing. You know it's happening. It's that thought that keeps coming up. It's that stirring or that burden about something. It could be in a dream or it could just be a persistent thought. And it has the flavour and the, the sense of the life of the Holy Spirit on it. His word to you now is it's go time. That doesn't mean the whole thing has to be realised. It means one foot in front of the other and another foot in front of the other and another foot in front of the other to be persistent in your seeking and your searching, to be intentional in this space. When we seek God, or the way it looks, if you want to know what does that look like, Part of it also means you're heading this way, business as usual, and you start to go this way, which is interesting because that's also the literal definition of repent. Struggle with that word because I feel like the connotations of that word are like the very complete opposite to what that word actually means. Something has happened where words of life have been hijacked and have been thought to be condemning or religious or pharisaical or just not compelling whatsoever, but when you look at the word repent, it's actually a really beautiful word. In the Hebrew Bible, seeking and repenting go hand in hand. You can't truly seek God without finding yourself turning around heart, attitudes, thoughts, behaviours, beliefs to another direction. The word repent means metanoia, which means literally a 180-degree turn. That, that way is a dead end, often ending in death of some sort, and this way brings life. There is something in you, on you, going on about you, where the Lord is saying, return to me. Return. Return to me so I can be God for you. It's the way this relationship is going to work. If you're not with me, I can't be the God I want to be for you. Return to me. A couple of definitions on repentance by J.I. Packer, the great theologian. Repentance, as we know, is basically not moaning and remorse, but turning and change. Henry Ward Beecher, another theologian. Repentance is the turning of the soul from the way of midnight 
to the point of the coming sun. It's a turning of the soul from the way of midnight to the point of the coming sun. And you can't make yourself repent. This is the frustrating thing. I've tried. (laughs) But at best, it's become something that is my will or an effort of my own flesh. True repentance comes when by the grace of the Holy Spirit, he does a work and he does this beautiful act of kindness that compels you to turn around. It comes not with condemnation. He never, ever condemns. The great liar does and your ego does. The Holy Spirit never condemns. He, he convicts. And convicts, conviction, in the words of Ray Ortland, <coughs> is a beautiful thing. He says that conviction of sin is the lance of the divine surgeon piercing the infected soul, releasing the pressure and letting the infection pour out. It's a work of tremendous and beautiful healing where the Holy Spirit comes to you out of love and adoration and zeal for who you are, what your journey has been, complete understanding of the circumstances that have led to where we currently are, but loves you too much to leave you there. Our choices always result in some kind of fruit. When the fruit ends up sour or bitter or infected and that abscess forms, it's painful and it doesn't matter how much you ignore it, It's there. And sometimes it's so infected you can feel your pulse in it. And it's this throb and it's this ache. And the Holy Spirit comes with his scalpel and he just goes... And he comes as the divine surgeon to restore it, particularly to restore the heart that led to the situation in the first place. And so what Isaiah is crying out here is that Yahweh... Their living God is back. (laughs) He was always there, but now he means business. Return to me so I can not just restore life that was, but do something even better and do something new. When we continue on in the passage, I don't know if this verse stood out to anyone in our Lectio. Verse 4. Seek God while he's here to be found. Call to him while he's close at hand. This verse makes me both respect God and causes a sense of trepidation in my relationship with God. We have grown up in an era that has taught us or told us that Jesus is a divine butler. He's on your beck and call. That you're doing him a favour by having him as a guest in your soul. That... At worst, he's that ticket to heaven, but at at best, he's here to offer up the never-ending pleasures of what I think life should be, when the actual truth is, no, he is relational as anybody else. And there are times and seasons to which and when he works, and there are times and seasons when he is ready and waiting to go. And it won't be forever. There is a particular window that's open for you now that wasn't open for you yesterday and may not be open for you tomorrow, metaphorically. I remember one day waking up and the Lord had been asking me for some time to wake up an hour early to spend time with him and I really struggled, still do. Not morning person. 
And every night I go to bed and go, tomorrow, (laughs) we'll do it tomorrow. I remember one day waking up, it's confronting to talk about, I remember one day waking up and actually being awake, which is very rare, usually I feel hit by a truck. And I did my morning wee and I came out. (laughs) That was not meant to be said. (laughs) Point is I was out of bed. So I'm already up, right? I don't know how I knew, but I knew Jesus was in my lounge room. And I went back to bed. Ouch. Hasn't happened since. I missed an opportunity. Seek him while he's there to be found. Call to him while he's close at hand. And for some of us in the room, that's not now. And that's okay. There's going to come a day when he's in the lounge room. For some of you, he is in the lounge room or he's knocking at the door. Or you just know that he's doing something and he's doing this greater work that is both exciting and challenging all at the same time. What would it look like for you to embrace that? God is here now, so act now. Passage goes on. Let the wicked abandon their way of life and the evil their way of thinking. Let them come back to God who is merciful. Come back to our God who is lavish with forgiveness. The word I am using here, I like to use is the word relinquish. Just lay it down. That thing that you've been carrying or pursuing or holding that could be your own sense of what it means to be saved, your private salvation project, we all have them. He says, give that one up. It could be a relationship. It could be plans and purposes. It could be, I'm not even going to make the list because you know what it is in your life. Something that feels good, but is not the best he has for you. And he's asking you to give it up, lay it down. This is the unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it doesn't produce harvest. The relinquish is the seed undressing its protective coat so that it can actually have a new life and produce more fruit. The word abandon means to reject, forsake, to leave, desert. Not the yummy food. (laughs) Desert it. So don't even have it there so that you're like. Desert it. Run away, flee, abandon. It's no longer to be called part of your life. It could be spiritual, it could be emotional, it could be social. G.V. Smith, theologian, says, the act of forsaking past ways and thoughts involves the rejection of these behaviours and a decisive break, a decisive break from past beliefs, assumptions, priorities and plans. For those of you 
who when we did the Lectio, this verse was what stood out to you. That the wicked abandon their ways. What is it? How could you make a decisive break to relinquish, let go? There is always, always, always a bigger story when God does something like this. He doesn't do it for fun. He does it because he's got a bigger goal in mind. And when you look at the context of what was happening to the Israelites when Isaiah was writing these words and, and giving this invitation to the Jewish nation and people that were dispersed throughout a land that was not their own, you realise that he's getting them to relinquish something so they can receive something better. This is how our God works every time. I am yet to see him fail in this, whether it be in my own story, in Red's story, or in other people who I know are pursuing Christ and seeking him and responding to his call. He never leaves you abandoned. He always has something bigger and something better in mind. So to fast forward, not to 587 BC, (laughs) but to the year 2019, 5,000 years since this piece of poetry, prophetic poetry was written, the Lord is saying there was a past and it was there and he knows it and he sees it, but he needs you to let that go. So that you can receive something else. This sentiment is right through Isaiah. You'll see it in Isaiah 43. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Don't you perceive it? What are your eyes seeing at the moment? Physical eyes, spiritual eyes. What have you been noticing and seeing as themes well through your heart and mind, as your head hits the pillow, as you drive down Canterbury Road or whichever is your main arterial. (laughs) Do you see it? What do you see? As the passage goes on, we see that he's inviting us to a completely new way of viewing reality. For my thoughts are not like your thoughts, and my ways are different from yours. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so my ways and my thoughts are higher than yours. This parallelism between ways and thoughts, ways and thoughts, is mentioned seven times in this section of scripture. And it's like the Lord is insisting that we think we know, but we don't. What we know is the equivalent of nothing (laughs) compared to what he knows. Paul, later on in Corinthians, says that the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. That we think and we've been taught that because God is dead, we're now God. We're living in the consequences of that today. He's saying, no, no, no. I've got a whole other way of viewing reality. Let me give you my reality on your situation. Let me give you my reality on your worries and your anxious thoughts. Let me give you my reality on your plans and your priorities. Because my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. And although you might be confused right now, I'm not. And I see with perfect clarity what it is I'm doing, the timing in which I'm doing it, and what this tapestry of your life is going to look like as I knit you together 
into the tapestry of other people's lives. As I knit together my plans and purposes, not just for this nation, but for the world, because it's time that I want to act now and I need my people on. He's doing a new thing. At this time, throughout this section in Isaiah, it's peppered throughout, you start to hear of this servant that's going to come. And to the reader of that time, you would naturally think, oh, it'll be another prophet. Oh, it'll be another Isaiah. Oh, it'll be another person. There is no way in the worldview at that time that any human being would have perceived that God himself was going to come in flesh and be that perfect servant and undo all the damage. It's just not in our thinking to do that. That's at the big end of the scale of God having plans that no one would ever, ever think. So misunderstood was his plan that his very people killed him. That's how much they would not have understood the plan of ways that are higher than theirs, thoughts that are different to theirs. But I've noted this year, particularly as people are pressing in more and more, crying out for more of the Holy Spirit, crying out for more of him in thirst and in hunger, and not just in assent, but in action and practice, that there are challenges that have come across people's paths. And I'm purely because I'm on stage, I don't have the, the liberty to just tell you story after story. But listen to the message of the stories. Un, not un, just situations of complete stuckness where there's no hope or future. Dead ends. No chance of reprieve. And yet through practice and life of seeking God while he can be found, solutions that defy understanding, that defy opinion, (laughs) that there is just no way you would ever have put together if you had three hours to put together a strategic plan of how that problem could be solved. There are situations that you've resigned to in your life. Relationships, past stuff, disappointments. And the best you can do is resign, not that you like that, but there's just no other option in the human worldview. And the Holy Spirit's wanting to dance around you with hope and saying, I've got a whole new way of looking at this. I want you to wake up to this. I want you to seek me and let's do something new together. And finally, as the passage that we're looking at comes to an end, we have a drenching rain. Not just a light shower, not just a big flood that comes and goes. A deeply drenching rain that satisfies the thirst of the soils that are down under layer after layer after layer. As the snow and rain that fall from heaven do not return until they have accomplished their purpose, soaking the earth, causing it to sprout with new life, providing seed to sow and bread to eat, so also will be the word that I speak. It does not return to me unfulfilled. My word performs my purpose and fulfills the mission I sent it out to accomplish. The image of rain is often used throughout the Hebrew scriptures to symbolize God's word. And just as we are in drought physically at the moment, spiritually we are desperate for the right word from God at the right time. 
I need a word. You need a word. Our church continually needs words that are bigger than our own understanding so that we can walk in the right direction and pave the right future. That means that we're not just a flash in the pan, but can have something that leaves a mark from generation to generation. And so this word brings a drenching and a soaking. That just as rain cannot fall on the earth without fulfilling the role God gave it, so God's words cannot fall from God's mouth without fulfilling the role God gave them. And of course, Jesus, the great surprise no one expected was the living word because he's just proving and affirming everything that the prophets have spoken. We didn't go on in this passage, we ended here, but if we were to go on, you would see example after example of how all of creation is renewed. That this isn't just new life to people, it's a new life to a creation that is groaning and desperate for revitalization and new life. Our creation is currently groaning and Christ's invitation to every single one of us is trust me. I cannot prove false. I cannot not redeem. I cannot not fulfill my word because I cannot betray my character. I will change how I do it all the time. But I will never not be trustworthy when it comes to the end of time we look at your life with the big trajectory we look at it just now God looks at it with a massive big perspective and he says all things work together for good to those who love me and come accord walk according to my purpose we're in 2019 in 2010 what's that nine years ago I was driving and had hit 30, so I was listening to Radio National. <laughs> I'm now 40 and I still listen to Radio <laughs> National. And as I was driving, I was on the way to a school thing, and um, this thing came across the news, and the biologists couldn't understand it, the ecologists and the people up in the driest parts of Australia and Alice Springs were just in awe that after 40 years of dormancy, these seeds that they thought had gone, a lot of them pronounced extinct, all of a sudden came to life. It's called a super bloom. And it's when the right conditions at the right time occur, culminating in a drenching rain that doesn't just hit the surface of the soils but digs right deep, 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 seeps, I should say, right deep, deep, deep. These seeds that have fallen asleep wake up. They can never tell when it's going to happen, although it will always happen mid-year if it's going to happen. But it was 40 years until this super bloom appeared. His seeds never die. The conditions may prevent they're flourishing, but his seeds never die. So I'm going to get you to stand as I want to pray over some seeds that are in your life. That the Father, who is the great gardener, has been doing a work with and on and speaking new words. That I ask and pray, Holy Spirit, the one who can go to the darkest places, Jesus, whose light penetrates every crack and crevice of the human heart. 
that you would search our hearts, that you would come in with that great light of the world that you are and bring illumination and bring hope and bring courage and bring perspective to those places. I want to pray particularly for people who have found a despondency or a disillusionment about words haven't been spoken but left unfulfilled. I want to ask and pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do a work that creates a quickening of returning. Jesus, I ask and pray that you would continue to do your work in us that creates us into worshippers of spirit and in truth. I ask and pray that you would make us thirsty because we can't make ourselves thirsty. And I ask and pray for those that are thirsty and have felt a stirring of you that, Holy Spirit, you would just do such a beautiful and kind and gentle work in those places. And most of all, I ask and pray, dear Father, that you would do such a beautiful soaking work in this church community. And I ask and pray, that you would also heal our land. That if the humble, the people who are called by my name will humble themselves and return to me, I will turn to them and I will heal their land. And so Father, we cry out on behalf of the farmers that are, are struggling in ways we can't imagine. And we ask and pray for rain. But we know ultimately we need your spiritual reign. So as we gather together to worship now, Holy Spirit, come. Would you pour down like water? Would you pour through our souls? Would you continue to make us whole that we can be your active and faithful ambassadors in this dry and weary land where there currently isn't much water? In Jesus' powerful name.